Today's guest is Dr. Michael Gervais of the Seattle Seahawks. For more information about Dr. Gervais and Pete Carroll, go to winforever.com or check out Michael's podcast, Finding Mastery, Conversations with Michael Gervais. And now, a guy with a great sense of humor, Jim Huber. After basketball, his dream is to become a rodeo clown. Jim Huber. Hey, everybody. Oh, it is hard work being this good. I was like, <laughs> So today on the show, Michael Gervais is our guest. He is a doctor. He has his PhD, and he works with the Seattle Seahawks. He's Pete Carroll's peak mind performance, field performance, new age kind of, they all do yoga. They go to the Super Bowl, and you're 36 inches from a second Super Bowl. Play clock at five. Pass is intercepted at the goal line by Malcolm Butler. Unreal. They try to pick play, Al, and I'm sorry, but I can't believe the call. Me neither. I cannot believe the call. You've got Marshawn Lynch in the backfield. I can't believe the call. Uh, Dr. Gervais, thanks for being here, and describe what you do for the Seattle Seahawks. Well, the Seattle Seahawks are a finely tuned, uh, professional, world-leading franchise in the NFL. And one of the things that I spend most of my time um, assisting uh, is with the coaching staff and the athletes to help them uh, generate strategies to be able to excel in rugged environments specifically on the mental part of the game. What does that mean? The mental part of the game, if you ask any coach, any athlete for the, in, in just about any world-leading organization or you know, world-presenting uh, sport franchise, it's an important part of the game. And coaches and athletes are really good at it. They're already very talented at understanding the nuances of the inner game. And so what I'm doing here is accelerating what they already have and supporting them and challenging them to go further on the inner part of the game. How, how hard was it getting these guys back up after that play? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, a fair question. And um, in the locker room, there was more intensity of emotion in one environment than I've ever seen. And there was people that were um, deeply hurt and sad, and there was people that were angry, and there was people that were scared that this was going to happen again, and they were searching and yearning for answers. And the intensity in that locker room was unbelievable. And what ends up taking place is that for both teams, after a loss, is that they go back to their facility and they do exit interviews and they have one team meeting. And I've, I don't think I've seen a more powerful capture um, uh, from a coach of a collective understanding of how to bring a team back together than I saw Coach Carroll do. And he did a great job pulling that team back together on that Monday after the Super Bowl lost by giving them a way to think about it, by giving them context on how to make sense of what took place. What did he say to him, Michael? Well, he just, he gave him the, he explained what happened and why the decision was made and the trust that he has and and the players to be able to execute. And it was, it was thoughtful. It was well, uh, well organized and clearly articulated. And then what happened was that the athletes went away and we all went away and then we created a new storyline or another storyline and we're influenced by media and you know people were influenced by their their mom and their dad and all the people in their in their um, you know community about um, that loss and so when we got back together the the team was still grieving the team was still 
trying to make sense of how to do it again. And what a wonderful opportunity this year has been to work through uh, the depth of emotions, the uh, trust of relationships, and trust of each other. And it's been it's been incredible. It, it's been an incredible journey. I've never been part of uh, something quite like this. And were there were there you know when you look at a Michael, there's so much outside influence <clears throat> that is involved. Whether it's you know say parents that that get involved, whether it's saying something on Twitter, social media that can affect the culture. Were there things that um, you know, Coach Carroll talked about, maybe the approach, what to do, what to say to those individuals, how to handle those type of situations? Yes and no. I mean, the, the, a driving message was you're going to feel a lot. And so it's perfectly fine to feel everything as you go on this journey. Not that anyone needs permission, but it's a sense of encouragement to, to feel this and to go through it and to see if you can stay connected with people. And... You know, and instead of alienating and pushing them away during the pain of the grieving or, or the, the loss process, after a Super Bowl, they call it the Super Bowl hangover. Or after yeah. a championship, they call it the, the hangover. And then after a loss, it, we're calling it like the process of grief. So what's the common thread is that outcomes, the information that's provided after you go for it, and either when you go for it and, it, and you get the thing that you're searching for, which is the victory and the experience and knowing how to compete at the highest level and come up victorious, or you don't get the thing that you want, which is that you didn't win and something didn't go quite right. Okay. Either way, that piece of information fundamentally shapes how you see your life, if you allow it to. So it's like these, there's a deeper layer here is that winning and losing affect people's psychological framework. And so it's recapturing a robust, sturdy psychological framework so that people can keep pursuing the thing that they're most interested in. And what we want people to be in in the partnerships that we have are people that are gritty, people that are internally driven, people that are um, open to learning and growing and uh, want to explore their potential independent of the environmental conditions. And because of that, it doesn't matter if it's a win or a loss. The process is that we have to recapture a way of thinking about growing and competing and um, being open to learning in rugged environments together, whether it's a win or a loss. You work with a lot of people that are are highly skilled, and there is a ton of pressure in the moment. And it's ironic that, you know, you look at the Seahawks now, and I, I used to live in Minneapolis and the Vikings, and you talk about that kicker and the pressure that is on these skill-type players. Um, how, how do you help someone that is under that kind of pressure deal with that pressure? It's a great question because pressure um, – there's an assumption that pressure has to be part of life's experience. And so I don't think that that's actually the case um, because we can dissolve pressure. It's possible to, there's like, there's like bands or levels of pressure and, or the response to pressure. You can choke, you can micro choke, you can uh, perform under pressure, you can thrive under pressure, and you can dissolve pressure. And so the first order of business is like, you know, understanding what it means to dissolve pressure. And if you think that there's pressure, you're right. There is pressure. Mm-hmm. And what is there pressure on? It's the experience of pressure is feeling as though you need to think or move faster than you're capable of thinking or moving. And why would that take place? Because an ancient system inside of our, our body is triggered. 
which is the fight or flight or freeze syndrome. And when that begins to the cascade of the uh, neurochemicals and physiological effects that come with perceiving threat, we're, we're, we're now working against what is real. Because in that moment, there is no threat. There's no real threat. What, what, is, what is at stake is that other people won't find you favorable. Hey, Michael, so what, that, what are some yeah. of the strategies that you implement with them to help them not see it as a threat and maybe focus on the process in front of them? Well, the first is um, understanding their, their, sounds fancy, but it's their psychological framework. How do they see the world? If they really value what other people think of them, it's, we have to put in more work <laughs> to help them decouple and devalue um, what as a defining feature of how they see the world that people determine um, yours or my state. And so the, the first order of business is understanding that. Do you value, or maybe we should say overvalue, what other mm-hmm. people think of you, as opposed to uh, the way it feels to take a shot and the way it feels at night when you know that you brought everything that you could possibly today. And we don't wait for uh, the lights to turn on to work on the psychological framework. The second thing we do is we give them skills and tools such as breathing and self-talk and um, as the two foundations to be able to adjust when they notice that they do feel pressure or threat. And then the third is we, um, we orientate them to focus all of their intention and, and their efforts on things that are 100% under their control. I mean, individuals really, they want to be loved. They want to be accepted. I mean, that's part of our, I guess, human nature. Yeah, yeah the need to belong. Need to belong is really strong. That's a need of theirs. Then what would you do maybe in a meeting with them? What are some of the exercises you might do with them to help them? Maybe they don't think that way. Out of the three that I just mentioned to you, you're, you're wanting to kind of unpack the most challenging one which is to help somebody shift, fundamentally shift their psychological framework um, is really challenging. And what we would suggest is that we engage in relationships. This is how you would unpack this. Engage in relationships where you matter independent of your performance, period. And what we're demonstrating on a regular basis, and when I say we, I just mean coaches in general that are helping facilitate um, exponential performance growth is that we care to understand who the person is and we love them for who they are rather than what they do. And that is a, you know, it's orientating towards a deeper relationship with people other than the, the, uh, the transaction of performance. Because if we stay on the transaction of performance to have value, man, our, we're all going to be at the wit's end of the outcome. I heard you talking about how people get good at things and that kids start early at 9, 10, and they get good at things, and it becomes a part of their identity, kind of what you were talking about right there, that performance becomes a part of them feeling good. Understanding that the, the developmental process for people is really a nice map to think about how to support and appropriately challenge them. And loving parents who want the best for their children and want to give their kids a head start and a competitive advantage, you know, they know that when my kid scores that, you know, they're going to get looked at or they're going to get paid more attention to. And, and that ultimately is what we're trying to do is be great teammates and then, you know, impact an outcome in some way by either helping other people or being a direct influence on the outcome. But loving parents that really understand uh, the developmental process have an advantage, a distinct advantage is that if you can focus on questions in conversations with children 
in which the child has direct influence over, such as effort and attitude and communication and um, going for it and how they quickly they let go of mistakes. Those are the five that I spend most of my time with. That those give um, the athlete a sense of mastery and control. And that's what we want to do for young people is give them a sense of mastery and control as opposed to fusing their identity with the outcome. Right. That's too, that, 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 at some point, that's too much. You talked about letting go of mistakes quickly. What would you tell that kicker for the Vikings about letting it go? How do you let something like that go quickly? Well, I, you know, I, I can't begin to know what went into why the kick was missed. Was, it he, was, was he thinking about Richard Sherman coming off the edge the, the kick before and how close he got to it? Or was he thinking about, you know, the, all the pressures on me? Or, you know, or was he loving up the way it felt to be the man in the arena? He was so excited that he was overexcited. You know, I, I, don't, I don't know, but he does need to uh, learn from it and move on quickly. And so, you know, fighter pilots have uh, a, a, a well-oiled um, practice called the OODA loop, and those that can be in the OODA loop faster are, um, are able to uh, shift and orientate uh, quicker to adversity. So it's observe, orientate, decide, act. And so he needs to, you know, I would suggest that what he does is orientate, like the, the, uh, observe what he felt and learn from it, orientate a new way of doing what he needs to do, which might be just trust his body of work, or it might be to shift the way he's been thinking, make a decision and act on it. The quicker a person can let go of their mistakes and be in the present moment, the, the, the accelerated arc of growth that that person will be on. You have a lot of parents that, you know, youth do make mistakes or they struggle or they don't succeed on the basketball court or the football field or whatever it is. And you mentioned parents can be in conversation. They can dialogue. They can ask questions. What yeah. would some of those conversations be like or what questions would they ask? And how do you do it without it coming off as an attack? Because, it, you know, sometimes okay, so, they perceive yeah, it that sure. way. Yeah, for sure. So why do kids leave sport? Because of the car ride home. That's why they leave sport. And we've got an incredible problem in America or challenge in America, which is that people leave sport early. And there's a very predictable point in which almost every sport, there's, a, there's this big cliff of where kids leave. So what do you do in the car ride home matters so much. One, love your child for who they are, not what they did. Pay attention to what it felt like to be your child as opposed to what he did. So that, what does that look like? That looks like, hey, Johnny, God, it's, I love watching you go out there and compete. Johnny, I love watching you go out there and, and really strain and struggle and take a shot. Hey, what was it like, Johnny, when um, you took that shot on goal and then uh, you hit the ground first and the ball just dribbled in? What was that like for you? And ask and be curious what it's like to be your son. And then he'll share and he'll be open to share because he, you, he knows that you care about him and his experience as opposed to why didn't you hit the ball square or why did you put that, you know, you, you had a breakaway. Why did why'd you put it, try to get fancy or... You know, so you just ask about their experience and reward by paying attention to effort, attitude, mindset, letting go of mistakes, you know, being a great teammate, which are all things that are under a person's control. You, you know, you talked about, and I'm always intrigued by this, breathing and meditation. You'll hear me talk about mindfulness, and you'll hear me talk about the strategies to become present and to be present in quiet moments and rugged and even hostile moments. And so breathing is a mindfulness 
practice and focusing on one breath at a time and becoming masterful at an inhale and masterful at the space between the inhale and the exhale and then masterful at the exhale. And it's a, tr- it's a training mechanism to train your mind to become more aware of now. And if you can become more aware of now, meaning you're in the present moment more often, expert performance is revealed in the present moment. High performance is demonstrated in the present moment. Mastery is experienced in the present moment. And so that's one r- pillar of mindfulness is to increase your ability to be present and the awareness is required in the present moment. The second pillar of mindfulness is insight and wisdom. And when you have, when a person has gained insight and wisdom, which is a life journey, it's not, you know, a six-week hack. It's a life journey. When you understand and have insight and wisdom, you come to some basic truths about life. And one is what you do can never define who you are. And if, that, if you can really absorb and understand and believe that, there's an incredible freedom on the other side of going for it. Because the joy of entering challenge and risk is so great. It's so wonderful. And knowing that the outcome can never define fully who you are because it's an action, not an experience of the human. Um, it doesn't capture the humanness of a person. So um, I, I don't want to be too esoteric on it, but mindfulness is a powerful strategy. Uh, focusing on breathing is a wonderful uh, approach to it. And what happens when you focus on one breath at a time, you'll notice when your mind wanders. And then when it wanders, can you refocus? And that's an incredible skill for athletes and people in general, especially in the noise of our environment now with the amount of distraction and, um, that we have on a daily basis from both digital uh, and otherwise. And those people that are able to get to signal, it's a competitive advantage in life. It's an amazing advantage to get to the true signal. Hey, Michael, on the breathing, I've seen individuals like, you know, the, the kind of exercise like, Breathe in for four, hold for two, breathe out for one, or a certain amount of seconds. Is is that what you do, or is there a certain like technique well, yeah, that you give them? That would be the very mechanical approach, and there's lots of different strategies for breathing. Um, I want to make it as simple as I possibly can and let the exhale be longer than the inhale. And um, so if you're, someone's going to breathe in for four and just kind of hold and feel some tension at the top of it, and then just exhale for longer. And what do you focus on? You could focus on the one, two, three, four, the counting of it, but more importantly, you want to focus on the way it feels to be breathing in and then focus on the way it feels to be breathing out. And this is a practice that's been around for 2,500 years. This is not something new, and it's not something new age by any means. It's a robust, sturdy practice to help people train their minds to become more aware of the present moment so they can have some insight and wisdom about how the world really works. Now, is, is, there, is there also imagery with that? Did you have them like use imagery when they're breathing as well to yeah. see themselves no. kind of doing these no. things in the game? No. Imagery is a whole separate skill and practice. Mindfulness in and of itself allows for deep focus and calm so that you can be more aware. Now, if you, once you get to a deep focus, calm state and you want to layer on performance imagery, that's nice. That's really good. But they are... Um, they can they can dovetail into each other, but essentially they are separate. So how do you, how do you do the imagery part of it then? Working with an athlete. So what you want to help an athlete do is wake up all of their senses, touch, smell, you know, as many as as we can, and you wake up all of their senses. And then, as one of the greatest um, athletes in the world described to me in their sport, um, uh, for ten years the most dominant athlete in their sport said, "It's the most beautiful movie I could ever imagine." 
So I watch it and experience it as much as I possibly can. And that's it. It's creating a beautiful movie in your mind of the way it feels to be you in whatever environment you want to experience later. And then there's one other little wrinkle, which is also seeing yourself adjust really well to challenges. When you first started this, you went to work for a hockey team. Talk about how, how the coach introduced you that first time. <laughs> yeah, let's say um, that my first introduction to pro sports right out of school um, was aggressive and essentially brought me into a locker room. And, uh, you know, and this was old school. And this was, I don't know, 20 years ago almost now. And um, the head coach says, listen, guys, if you're effed up in the head, go see Gervais. <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> I'll tell you what, how, how times have turned, you oh, know, and yeah. it's been, and, and it was great. Now I'm standing in the middle of the locker room, you know, now what do I do? And hey, how many, how many guys went over yeah, to how you? How many said, <laughs> hey, 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 I got a problem no, no, here. No, no, nobody did. And the coach just, like, coach left me there and he walked away. And so I looked at the coach and said, coach, my door's open for you. Like, you know, F you, brothers. Like, that, that, that's the F. And then the, your room just erupted. And, um, <laughs> you know, and so he stopped mid-tracks and looked back, like, good for you, kid. Yeah. And so um, we ended up, he and I ended up having a really good relationship. Um, but now, like, uh, coaches are on it right now. And um, performance psychology and mindset training is not for the human that is struggling. It's for those that want to excel. And it's a completely different vector and pivot. So that's, that's at least how I'm spending most, most of my time. The other piece is that, you know, right before the Super Bowl, Coach, Coach Carroll turned to me and said, Mike, we're, this is great. We're really on to something. You know, do you think anyone else would be interested? I said, what do you mean? And he said, why don't we write down what we've done? Your stuff, my stuff, let's put it together, exactly what we've done, you know, leading into this first Super Bowl. And let's see if some corporations might be interested in, in, you know, creating a culture that helps people thrive and as well as training the people inside of them how to coach each other to have a great mindset. And so we did that. And, you know, that is essentially the essence of what uh, the offering is to, to corporations that we're offering. And it's been a blast. If yeah. you had the opportunity to, say, go to a college football, basketball mm-hmm. program, NFL, go in an organization, you're the head guy. You're the Pete Carroll. What are the steps you're going to take to implement the type of culture and success they've had at like USC in Seattle? What would you do? Uh, it's, uh, it's really clear, and that's to become and create a relationship-based organization with one aim for people to become their very best. And that's essentially what I've observed Coach Carroll has done, is that it's, this is a relationship-based approach for one aim people to be at their best, and what we're doing together is working on football. But that football can be replaced with, you know, technology, or it can be replaced with basketball, or it can be replaced with family development, or entrepreneur, or, you know, whatever it might be. And so it's a relationship-based approach. And remember how we first started this conversation, that it's helping people know that they matter more than the outcome matters. And how far can we take it? How deep can we go? And how, how, how well can we refine our skills both from a relationship standpoint and communication standpoint, as well as the thing that we're, we're agreeing to do together, which is the skill. And you don't discuss winning in Seattle, right? You guys don't talk about winning. It's mentioned once at the beginning of the year that if we get us right, we just might win the Super Bowl. That's it. We don't need to talk about winning. It's like if we were going to put one eye on the outcome, you've only got one eye on the process, and the process is where we become. 
And so uh, we, put, we do everything we can to gate out the noise so that we can put both eyes uh, on the process. So Coach Carol and I uh, um, have a very, um, we work towards the same, own, uh, same aim, and we have a little bit different um, language that we get to. So Coach says um, every, every practice is a championship practice. Every game, whether it's preseason or whatever, is a championship game. And so be as, as excited and vibrant in any and every moment that you can is what he's saying. Because all we get is this moment. All we get is this practice. All we get is this meeting. All we get is this walkthrough. All we get is this game. So let's get really good at bringing our best to every one of them. And what, what I'll suggest to people is there's no such thing as a big game. There's no such thing as a big half. There's no such thing as a big play. <laughs> Leave that to people on ESPN to talk yeah. about. All you get is this moment. This is the most important moment you have. And every moment is equal to each other because it's all we get. So let's work on mastering being fully present in this moment. Well, that's what I noticed. Like Pete Carroll talks about like one heartbeat, getting mm-hmm. all the like the 52-man roster, the coaches, the 20-something coaches all together. Now, does that start with maybe identifying when you're bringing people in, you're bringing the right people in that – um, or going to believe in your culture, or going to buy into your philosophies uh, before you get started, and then making sure you're doing stuff daily to get that continue that one heartbeat. You got it exactly right. And John, the partnership between John uh, Schneider, the general manager, and Pete Carroll is that relationship is important. And in a relationship-based organization, that's a really important relationship. And it, my observation is that they've they, they've done a great job together. Tell me if I'm doing this right as an amateur sports psychologist uh, with my boy. I, I tell him never worry about, only worry about the things that you can control. And what can you can control as a shooter? You can control your feet, your shoulders, your follow through. You can't control makes and misses. You can't control it. Am I on the right track there? Um, yes. I would uh, add one layer to it, which is I would drop the word worry because I don't think we want to encourage a worried mindset. Don't okay. worry about the things. And I would say, listen, let's be relentless about mastering the things that are in our control. What are those? And then I would help him or her understand the right time to focus on technique. During a game, that's not the right time to focus on technique. Right. But during practice, we want to focus on you know, uh, motor movement or whatever the that's the shorthand for, meaning that it's really neurological pathway memory, you know, in, in, in essence, but so that's where we want to focus on technique, but not during a game. Mistakes are going to happen. I mean, they happen, but coaches, we get so much like Emotion. wrapped up into it, emotional, and then we're like yelling, like, why did you miss that? Or, you, you know, thinking? yelling at them. And what the hell's it, wrong with you? What, what's your suggestion? And what have you seen, you know, Pete Carroll, master of like working with the athlete in those intense moments? How's he handle mistakes like that? Uh, mistakes happen. They're part of the game, you know, and it's just part of it. And, it's way deeper than focusing on the question of what do you do with a mistake. It's way deeper. It's do you care for that other human? And when you have deep care and regard and love for that other person that you're engaging your life efforts with, you don't want them. They already care. You, you don't need to add to disappointment and disrespect to the equation. You don't need to roll your eyes and be dismissive or say, what are you thinking? When you really care about somebody, it will be eloquent how you respond. And I think that response is uh, telling. Is is it about you know the athlete or is it about the coach? And my observation has been that I think you have about two seconds or three seconds 
by the point in the time in which the athlete or somebody makes a mistake and the coach responds to either build or take away from that person believing in themselves. What have you seen them do to build it in the positive way? Like what a statement or what, what reaction, what does a coach do that you've seen that's really impactful? When somebody really cares about another person, the response is eloquent. And so it's like, oh, you know, it's like almost like, damn, I, you know, I know how hard you've been working on that. And you'll see, then you'll see, you know, an arm over the shoulder and, and you know, conversation like, okay, what'd you learn? What happened? You know, um, get out there, you know, trust your body work. You're fine. Get on with this. This is what we do. Someone's going to take care of you. And so there is a talk track around it, but it's much deeper than just a mechanical thing to say. It's a deep care for the person and in a belief that something good's going to take place. Well, that's kind of like you mentioned, I heard you make a statement, and I've heard this is that sport is supposed to develop character, but it develops characters. So when the parents and the coaches get into themselves, wrapped up in their egos, and what they want, sometimes they become characters that cause kids that are playing to have bad experiences and end up quitting the sport. There's, there's so many well-intended coaches that mean well and want to do well and, and um, are still working out within themselves how to manage pressure. But my experience has been that uh, co- most coaches are right on the money. You know, they're really thoughtful, caring people that dedicate their life towards helping other people, and they believe that something great's about to take place. And that's why they keep putting in the long hours and, and caring so much about, um, you know, the progression of the sport or the progression of talent in the human. And so, um, yeah, I've just been encouraged by uh, being fortunate to work with world-leading athletes and, and and coaches that are hungry to explore progression. Well, and that's why I think it's so important for the coach, as you talk about Pete Carroll being the top, but then to be mindful, them to work on breathing, them to work on getting themselves in the right mind frame. So when they're interacting with their student athletes, professional athletes, whoever it is, they're having a more of a positive impact on them and controlling their emotions. If the orientation is that you want the best, the very best for another person in your life, Essentially, that's the relationship with my wife that I want the two of us to be in, is that I help her be her very best, and she helps me be my very best. And we're going to go on this kind of life journey together towards that. Why not do the same thing with people that we work with? And I literally mean people that we work with in sport and out of sport, is to work to understand who that person is, what is their philosophy, and then you know, go on this journey and help them become their very best. Nice place to stop. Doc, I feel better. I don't know how Jim feels. I (laughs) I feel a hell of a lot better talking to you. But I just want to thank you guys for the time and and hope you have a a great rest of the day. All right, so an interesting show, Jim. For you two, it's like things you can work on with your son. When he said, don't use the word worry. Yeah. That was big. I... A bell went off. I'm like, oh, okay, I get that. I mean, there's a lot of great information to help coaches, parents, and even players uh, become better at what we do. Go to BreakthroughBasketball.com, by the way, our sponsor, and uh, check out. They've got all sorts of great coaching information on there, player development information. All the new uh, camp stuff has come out. They yeah, the new national camps. And something camps nationwide. Uh, that'll be through the spring and summer. That, uh, and you'll be like traveling, flying all over the country doing camps. Yeah. Uh, I do not fly. You think going to Hawaii. I'm going to Hawaii. You are going to Hawaii. Yeah. Are you that? kidding me? Yeah. Dustin Pearson worked it out. I Breakthrough can't is that. doing camps in Hawaii, and you get to go to Hawaii. Yeah, I get to go. Well, you're going you to drive. You're going to drive to California, and then get in a boat, 
and take a boat to Hawaii. And <laughs> yes. It's going to take you a month to get I there. I would if and they a month would to get back. If they told me, Troy, we want Jim to stay home, you go. Yes, they I need would to do get that. like a taser gun and just shoot you and just have you knocked out and be like, hey, put you on a flight, send you out. I you can't wake fly. Up, I should talk to, to Dr. Javay about flying. I can't fly. I literally, I could drink like a quart of whiskey and then uh, take a bunch of you know tranquilizers. You related to John Madden? I would still just my hand would shake and I would be just like. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You got to get John Madden's bus and just go out and drive that bus around. I'll talk to Breakthrough and see if they can get a bus for you. So, Jim, have a great day. See you, you too. Woo! Rock and roll!